You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our text today is taken from Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of mankind. I'm sorry, the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through works, through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Martin Luther, the one that many would credit as the man to formally begin the Protestant Reformation by nailing his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany in 1517. He had some book-length exchanges with a Roman Catholic theologian named Desiderius Erasmus in the 1520s. And they had these exchanges about a particular issue. The question was, how much do we contribute to our salvation? And near the end of one of his more famous works, Luther was writing directly to Erasmus, and he says this, I praise and commend you highly for this also, that unlike all the rest, you alone have attacked the real issue, the essence of the matter in dispute, and have not wearied me with irrelevancies about the papacy, purgatory, indulgences, and such trifles, like he had nothing to say about those things, you and you alone have seen the question upon which everything hinges and have aimed at the vital spot. See, Erasmus and others, they they argued that humanity, we had some capacity in us. We had some ability, some desire to contribute to our salvation. While Luther and the Reformers, however, they argued that from beginning to end, salvation is a work of God's. It is by his grace alone. And so Luther, he commends him. He says, I disagree with your conclusion, but at least you're asking the right question. This is the question upon which everything hinges. It all hangs here. And now to keep us from thinking that this, why are we talking about this medieval doctrinal dispute from 500 years ago? We have this figured out, right? This is no application for us for today. Look at this. Just a year ago, Last year, 2022, a ministry conducted a survey asking professing American Christians about their Christian beliefs. And among other things, they found that about a third of people said that their works are part of how they get right with God. In another question, two-thirds of people said that though everyone sins a little, most of us are good by nature. 
I'm curious where they put that cutoff line of most, but most of us are good by nature. This, this question about whether or not we contribute anything to our salvation, this question is alive and well. If these statistics are right, then probably one-third to one-half of the people in this room believe that it's not by grace alone, but that it's by grace plus some of the things that I do that set me right with God. We're still debating what the Bible teaches on this. Today, we're, we're continuing our series in the solas of the Reformation, and we've looked, uh, and sola, we've said, means alone, and these are the alone statements. We've looked first at Scripture alone. We've looked at Christ alone. Last week, we looked at faith alone. Next week, we're going to look at that God alone gets the glory, but this week, as we work through this text in Ephesians 2, we're going to find that salvation, the salvation of sinful humans is sola gratia, by grace alone. And and Paul, he makes it really plain here. And so I'm going to do my best to keep it plain and not muddy the waters too much. And this week, as I was was sitting in my study, staring at my ceiling, trying to figure out uh, a main point that I thought that you would be able to remember maybe past 1045, something that was, it it probably would have had some alliteration in it, maybe a little bit of rhyming. I probably would have put some parallelism in it. But what I realized is that I can't do better than the Apostle Paul, especially not in this text. The main point for a sermon on grace alone from Ephesians 2 is obviously verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Highlight it. Underline it. Star it. If you're, if you're one of those people that writes in the, your Bible, circle it. Find some way to, to write it upon the tablet of your heart. Memorize it. The rest of this sermon will be my attempt to show you how our passage proves these two verses true, that salvation is by grace alone. And we're going to do that under three headings this morning, and I'm going to give you um, some, some, uh, some inside information. The first one is the longest, so sit with me in the first one. So first, the problem of sin. One of my favorite questions to ask Christians when I'm getting to know them is, how did God save you? Essentially, I'm saying, what's your testimony? And I love this question because the answer is never exactly the same. A lot of us have similar stories, but none of us have the exact same story. And it's never the same because, as others have said, God is so powerful that he can save even the worst of sinners, which that would be us here He can save even the worst of sinners. He's that powerful, but he's so creative that he'll never do it the same way twice. In saving sinners, one of the things that God is doing is he's highlighting his creativity. But while our stories, they may vary slightly, they'll all have nuances and differences. Our our testimonies are going to be a little bit different. We all have the same story. And our story, this passage tells us, begins in death. Look with me beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, Paul is working up to his conclusion about salvation being by grace alone in verses 8 and 9. And and to do that, though, he wants to paint a grim but an honest picture. And, And there could be maybe no more grim or hopeless circumstance than death. If prior to Christ intervening in our lives by his grace, we really were dead, 
then I think that we'd probably all agree that salvation must be a work of his sheer grace, right? If the premise is true, then then this makes sense to us. It's not a hard sell. If we really were dead, then it's not hard to believe that salvation must be by grace alone, especially considering that Deuteronomy 20, or excuse me, 32 says that death and life, they're in God's hands. He has the power to give it. He has the power to take it away. If we were dead, then we're helpless. We're completely at his mercy. But if you're an attentive reader, there's an issue that arises from this. You, you may be saying, well, Matt, that is a disingenuous reading of this text. And to, and to prove your point, you, you, you may even be wondering if I even know how to read but to prove your point, you may cite the fact that we, we, uh, Paul is obviously being metaphorical and not literal, right? You'd say, uh, if we were really dead, we couldn't have walked in anything, like Paul says. You, you might cite the fact that he says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He's using a metaphor. He's being, he's being metaphorical. You'd cite the, the words that come later in verses 2 and 3, that we followed, that we lived, that we carried. These are not things that dead people do. And I'd agree with you. Of course, we weren't physically dead before we received Christ. Blood was coursing through our veins. It was carrying the oxygen from our lungs to the rest of our body to make sure that we were alive, biologically speaking. And I would also agree with you that Paul is using physical death as a metaphor, but he's not using it to describe an abstract principle like most metaphors. Paul is using the metaphor of death to tell us of a literal spiritual truth that our situation was as dangerous and as dark and as encompassing as death. And, and this, can, this can actually be very challenging for us to believe, especially 21st century Western people. We, we have a very hard time relating to spiritual realities generally. Even those of us that believe that spiritual forces are real and that they're at work in this world, we tend to relate to these realities in the same way that we relate to the Lord of the Rings. It's a fun read, it's creative, it gets my imagination going, but it doesn't really affect my day-to-day. But that's not how the biblical authors related to spiritual realities. Remember that place in 2 Kings? Uh, the, The king of Syria was warring with Israel. And the Syrians had surrounded the city with chariots and a great army. And the prophet Elisha's servant is very worried about this. But Elisha tells him, he's like, I'm not too concerned. Because even though you can't see it, the truth is Israel has more on their side than you know. We have more than the Syrians did. We read, then Elisha prayed and said, oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. There is always far more going on than we can simply see and touch and feel. And if our eyes were open to it, the reality of our situation would be far more evident to us. So so when Paul says that we are dead, Though he's being metaphorical, he absolutely means it. It's like a a picture, which is a true representation of a literal reality. Paul means that the physical reality of death that is all too real to us is really just a picture. 
compared to what we literally were spiritually before we knew Christ. And this is the reality. This is the reality that we are born into because of our first parents, Adam and Eve. Remember back in the garden early in Genesis, God, he, he created everything that is. And the pinnacle of his creation was humanity, Adam and Eve. And he placed them in the garden paradise to rule his creation and have communion with him. And he said, you, you can have access to everything. Everything is yours. Just obey me concerning this one tree. And in Genesis 3, the serpent comes in and tells Eve, God lied to you. He told you you'd die. You won't die if you eat of this tree. He lied to you. And if we're talking in simply biological realities, then it seems like the serpent was right. Right? Adam and Eve ate. We know the story. They were banished from the garden, but they continued to live, biologically speaking. But from that point on, they had died. They and all those after them, they no longer had access to the tree of life. They were now subject to decay and mortality and eventually physical death. And it's because they were alienated from God. They died a spiritual death, which we find is far worse than a biological one. And now that spiritual death that has occurred in them is handed down to us biologically. It's a spiritual sent, uh, death sent down through our bloodlines. Sin is now part of our human, human nature. The survey question that, that, I, that I referred to earlier, that most of us are good by nature, that's absolutely wrong. We were all bad by nature. We're evil by nature. We're wicked by nature. We're depraved, so much so that King David would say in his famous psalm of repentance, in Psalm 51, that from my womb sin clung to me. Sin was what theologians have called original to us now. It clings to us from conception. We're born in it, and it touches every part of our humanity. Now, none of us are as bad as we could be, but, but sin has touched every part of us. That It's, it's corrupted us totally. No, there is no part of us anymore, our will, our actions, that is not stained by the damage done through sin. We're born in a place of inability, inability to save ourselves, inability to, to do any saving work. And so de death is actually a very good metaphor to describe our hopelessness. But as we think about it, if this is as severe as it is, it may not be severe enough. The metaphor of death might not be enough, and that's why Paul goes on. He, see, he doesn't want us to be confused and think that death was just some sort of simple passive inability, that we didn't have the ability to get right with God. We were passive to the things of him. No, our death was an active rebellion. Each one of us were an active rebellion toward God in our death. Let's read again, verses 1 and 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Paul says here in our text that we walked in our sin. We, we followed the same course of the rest of sinful humanity. Humanity that he writes is following after the prince of the power of the air who is at work in the sons of disobedience. Spiritual powers are at work in the world. They were at work in our lives. See, sin is not just naughty things that we do. It's, it's not just the bad things that we do and the good things that we leave undone. It is those things. It's not less than that, but it's far more. It's, it's a sway. It's a power. 
Like death, it's all-consuming and leads no part of the person alive. And it's a powerful sway. It's a royal but evil power at work in those living in death. Are you starting to see it? Sin is so powerful that it has us convinced that the, the life that we lived, excuse me, the, the death that we were in was actually life. That's how powerful that it is. Sin is so powerful that it has us convinced that our death was actually life. Our spiritual death was, wasn't some sort of deep sleep or, or simple indifference toward God. Each of us were active in our rebellion toward him. And that's why Paul continues and said that we were, by nature, children of wrath. Spiritual death wasn't the end, but it had an end in sight. And that end was the wrath of God, an eternity in hell. And listen, grace is only glorious if it actually saves us from something. If we, if we actually were sinners on a path headed directly to hell and we were liberated by God's grace, it becomes glorious to us. If you view grace in your life, God's grace in your life, as a simple improvement plan, it, it, it's, it's something that's, that's making a good person better. But, but it's, it's not taking a dead person out of the path toward eternal punishment then you have a deficient, and I would argue a wrong view of grace. We, we live in a world and a society where we're reluctant to tell anyone that their life is leading them to hell. We, we don't want to tell people about God's justice. We want to simply agree to disagree with people. We're, we're unwilling to tell people that they're on a path towards God's, God's just judgment for their sins, but God has made a way for them in Christ. But hell is a real place. Jesus says the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads there. And many of us, many, many of those are going. But hell is another reality that the Bible describes in these kind of metaphorically literal terms. Jesus describing the final judgment in the Gospel of Matthew says that the, the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus elsewhere describes hell as a place of outer darkness. So all the things that he gives just sound absolutely terrible. Um, but a, a pastor who died only just the other day, Tim Keller, uh, used to say when people asked him about these descriptions of hell, about a fiery furnace and outer darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth, and things like that, He'd, they'd ask him, they'd be concerned, is, is this really what hell's going to be like? And he'd, say, and he'd go on to say that, well, you know, Jesus is prob he's probably being metaphorical, not literal, which would usually provoke some sort of relief, you know, like, a, whew, thank goodness. Uh, but he'd go on to say that they're probably metaphorical of a literal reality that is far worse than what we can describe with our words. And, and I don't know if we think about this enough to be honest with you. Even as Christians, I think that if we did, we'd probably be far more exuberant in our worship and gratitude and praise to God for our salvation. And I think we'd probably be more persistent in our evangelism. If this is where we were truly headed before Christ intervened by his grace, if we really were children of wrath, and this is where many of our friends and family and co-workers and all of our loved ones are headed now, why are we so slow to give them Christ? 
Why are we content to let them die in their sin, knowing that the free gift of life is available to them just as freely as it was available to us? We need to contemplate these things. Why are we so flat in our worship, myself included? Why are we so apathetic, it seems, when it comes to bringing praise and glory to God? The reality that we, of what we are saved from and where many of our loved ones are still headed should fundamentally change our worship and our evangelism. But listen, the glory of the gospel, the, the glory of grace alone is not just what we are saved from, but what we are saved to. If we're only preaching hellfire and brimstone, we may be scaring people out of hell, but we're not exactly ushering them into heaven. But Paul's gospel here is balanced, and it displays the glories of both. Let's look at number two, the pattern of grace. Um, let's stop, though, and, and retrace Paul's argument here. We were dead in our trespasses, and that, that death was not only something that happened to us through Adam and Eve, but it's something that we brought upon ourselves through the ways that we lived. We, we were dead, just like a physical death, and, and it was all-encompassing, and we couldn't get ourselves right with God. And because God is just, we were headed toward his wrath. Verse 4, but God. Given the context, these may be the two most beautiful words in Scripture. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. We were headed toward an eternity of God's just wrath if he didn't intervene. But God did intervene. And this is God's way. His way is to intervene and save a people who are wholly unable to save themselves. This is, this is love. This is what true love looks like. See, each of us, we experience love imperfectly. Even those people that we find challenging to love, but we still find a way to muster it up and love them anyway. We can still find, even the, the person that you find the hardest to love, you can still find at least one redeeming quality. One endearing aspect where you're just like, oh, but at least Matt does that. But not so here. Maybe you can't find any endearing qualities about me. It's okay. Not so here. We were, we were God's enemies. Scripture says that we were dead in our sins. We were in outright rebellion toward him. We were, choosing, we were literally choosing murderers over the author of life. And it was at that point that Christ died for us. The author of life came to us and we gave him our death for it. But in exchange for our death, he's offered us his life. And listen, this is the way God worked at the cross, and this is the way that God has worked throughout all of redemptive history and scripture. Let me try to show you. See, every industry or, or culture has its own jargon. Uh, if I came to your workplace or to your home, you would use words and phrases that have a world of meaning to you, but might fly just right over the top of my head because it's become jargon. And the language of the Bible is no different. See, Paul who wrote, wrote Ephesians here, he, he likely had most of the Bible, if not the whole of the Hebrew Bible memorized, which would be about three quarters of the Bible sitting in your lap. He had about, he probably had that whole thing memorized. And so he was so immersed in the text that when he writes and when he speaks and when he thinks, he does so in biblical terminology. 
He can't help it. We can say that he's using biblical jargon, but that jargon has a world of meaning to him. And so it should have a world of meaning to us. And so I don't think it's a coincidence that verses 4 and 5 sound so familiar. Back in um, Exodus 34, God declared his name to Moses as he passed by him. And what did he say his name was? The Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. The center of our passage here bears a striking resemblance to the name of God. I don't think that's an accident. Paul's continually, he he continually has God's name on his mind. And so he may be saying, listen, God's salvation of his enemies is actually just consistent with who he is. He's saying it's because God is merciful and gracious. It's because he is full of steadfast love and faithfulness. And because this is who he is, this is how he acts to save. This is just the biblical pattern. Right right after Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis that we looked at earlier. Remember, what was the penalty supposed to be? Death. And in Romans, Paul says that death is just our wages for sin. It's our payment. It's what we've earned for ourselves. Um, but as we, as we said earlier, they did die a spiritual death, which can be considered far more dangerous than a, sp- uh, than a physical death. But listen, God wasn't like pulling the rug here and doing like a bait and switch, like, oh, I said it was going to be death, but it's not really death. Something died a physical death that, way, that day as well. Just before God sends them out of the garden into their spiritual death of exile, Genesis 3.21 says, The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. They should have died, but instead something died on their behalf. Something was slain to cover them. God was gracious to them, providing a sacrifice to cover their sin, providing a way for the serpent crusher that he had just talked about that was going to come from Eve. He was providing a way for that person to be born. These people were in outright rebellion against him, and he provided a way that he could be both just and the justifier. All the way back from the first sin, or consider probably the most famous list in human history, the Ten Commandments. How does it begin? Now you say, Bible quiz, I know that. I know the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Nope. That is the first commandment. How does it begin? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Israel's story is that they were oppressed. They were essentially dead in slavery in Egypt. And God powerfully liberated them out of bondage to be with him and to walk in his ways. Sounds pretty familiar. And the biblical examples can just go on and on, all the way back to the first act of creation, that God made anything at all. And then we can follow these examples through the Red Sea, out into the wilderness, to the judges, to the kings, all the way till we get up to Jesus, to the point where Paul describes our former realities in the terms of the same biblical pattern when he says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Listen, Paul is making some claims here. He's saying if you've been saved from an ending of God's just wrath and and you've received God's grace and been made alive together with Christ, then what is true of him is true of you. In a very real way, the truest thing about a Christian is is that though we live here on this earth, we are in the very realest and truest and fullest sense of the word, literally seated with Christ in heaven. And listen, folks don't sit down when work still needs to be done. They sit down when the work is finished. Paul's saying that there's nothing more that we can add to it. We can't do anything to add to it with our works. Christ did it all. The work is done. You are seated with him. Rest in it. Glory in it. Know that what we now have to look forward to, beginning now, is an eternity of immeasurable riches of grace and kindness from God. All because of Christ. Not because of us. And this is leading us to Paul's explosive, joy-laden conclusion, for by grace you have been saved. And salvation by grace alone is for a purpose. And so third and finally, the purposes of our salvation. Um, in the final verses of our text here, we see at least two, verse, or two purposes for salvation. One is vertical. It has to do with our relationship to God. The other one is horizontal, and it has primarily to do with our relationship with one another. And we're going to look at those two quickly, and then we'll be done. But first, the vertical. Um, one of my favorite little church buildings is in the town in Germany where my wife was born and raised, and her family still lives there now. Um, and it was built in the late 1490s. And it was constructed of of these really dark, big stones. But over the doors to the entrance of the church, in in gold lettering, are the words, Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. And it's because Christians, we enter the church, we enter into God's people group by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. And we're going to cover Soli Deo Gloria in much more depth next week. But, but we, must, we have to see it while we're here. We must see that God's primary purpose for salvation by grace alone is so that he alone will get the glory. Look at verses 8 and 9 again. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. God's God's gift of salvation is by his free, sovereign grace so that none of us can boast about it. No one can say that I did anything to get in. Even the faith that we truly exercise, and that can be a, a mind meld, the faith that we truly exercise is a gift of his grace. And it's so that he alone will get the glory. And listen, if anybody was gonna be able to boast about it, it would have been the apostle Paul, the man writing this. At one point in Philippians 3, Paul says that he was blameless according to the law. Those 613 laws and statutes in the Old Testament that people were supposed to keep. Yeah, Paul says, I was blameless. And he goes on to say that his blameless record, though it was perfect, was actually garbage compared to the righteousness that he received in Christ. 
All of his works, all of his trying to be perfect, all of his labor was absolute rubbish. Even a man with a perfect record has to, go, has to acknowledge that he must lay it down to receive the better record of Jesus. By the grace of God. When, when, when salvation is by grace alone, God alone gets the glory for it. And so that's the first thing. That's the vertical. Secondly, the horizontal. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, God gets all of the glory for salvation because we're not saved by works, but Paul says that we are saved for works. He's moving from God's work in salvation to God's salvation working out in his people. And he says that part of salvation is walking in the works that he's prepared for us. Remember, we used to walk in our evil deeds, walk in our transgressions and sins, but he's saying now, walk in the good works that I've prepared for you. And I, th- I think we tend, we read this verse and we tend to mystify it unnecessarily. We, we wonder to ourselves like, man, what are the good works that God has prepared for me to walk in today? I have to figure them out in my morning Devo time. Because if I don't have the ability to know them, how am I going to be able to walk in them? But do you want to know what the works are? I can just tell you what the works are right now. I'll demystify it for everybody. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Live your life according to the grace that you've received in Christ. Align your life, everything about your life, with his priorities and not yours. Count others as more significant than yourselves. Evangelize the lost and make disciples. Pray for the suffering among us. Sing praises of joy and cheer and gratitude. Give financially for the, to, the, to the saints in need. Be hospitable to outsiders, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everybody, encourage one another in the Lord as you see his day drawing near. The list can just go on and on and on. These are the works. Treat others the way that God in Christ has treated you, with otherworldly love. In Romans, Paul says that we were God's enemies. We were dead. It was while we were his enemies that Christ died for us. If you've been saved by that kind of grace and love, then treat people that way. Offer that to them. These are the works. And now we do them because the work of our salvation, the work, was finished on our behalf. This sermon is going to have a very cold ending. It's just going to end because once you see that God's grace alone is the way in which he works, you can open any page of the Bible and see him graciously at work to save sinners. I can't exhaust what's here. We could talk about God's grace for ages, and we will on into eternity. The Christian life is lived from a place of deep assurance that leads us to perform good works to God's glory that he's prepared for us. Assurance in the fact that God's salvation is by grace alone. It's even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that none of us can boast. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, 